Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at ko-online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette. And as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today has been involved in martial arts since 1967, has written and published nine books on Kempo, served as Ed Parker's representative in the Midwest for 11 years, and was on the board of examiners of the International Kempo Karate Association. He was also the U.S. representative for Jeff Speakman's AKKS and was on the board of for the WKKA and the Illinois State Rep for the American Karate Association. He co-founded the Chinese Karate Federation in the 90s with Sean Kelly. Today, he serves as a senior instructor of the Progressive Kempo Systems Group and is also certified by the FAA as a flight instructor. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Lee Wedlake. How are you doing today, sir? I'm good, Brian. I appreciate you having me part of the project. Hey, I appreciate your time. I, I, I know how busy people are, and anytime people are willing to give time for the podcast, I truly, truly appreciate it. What we like to do with all my guests, I want to go back to the very beginning. I know I mentioned you've been in it since 1967, but I want to know what led to that. Where did that first interest, that first spark about martial arts kind of come from for you? I credit my martial art career to uh, three women. Okay. But one would be my mother. Another one would be my one of my first judo instructors and then uh, my aunt. But uh, it was my mother that got me started with a judo class at the YMCA. And uh, that did not go very well, but she thought I really liked it. So one Mm -hmm. day I woke up, she had signed me up for judo lessons at a real school, which I uh, went down there to visit with a lot of apprehension being about 10 or 11 years old. Okay. And uh, the instructor that I met there on that, uh, when I took that first class was a lady named Carol Wolken. And Carol said, show me what you're doing. I showed her what I had learned at the first year of class. She shook her head and said, not like that. (laughs) And she showed me how to fall correctly because the first class had been going home with headaches because the instructor really didn't pay attention to what we were doing. Oh, wow. said, this, you know, this is not fun. She fixed it and I said, oh, this is fun. And it really hooked me. So I really give her a lot of credit for that. Okay. And so back then, was that was that a little rare back then for to have female instructors? Well, you know, this is the late 60s. Okay. And it was a judo school. Judo had been the had been the art that got the most attention back then because it was a James Bond thing. Okay. And karate would come along a little bit later. Then you had the kung fu craze in the 70s. But yeah. In the judo world, yes, we had some female instructors, but just as today, there just weren't as many as men. Right. Think about maybe those those first handful of classes at that actual judo school. Once you got there and realized, yes, it was fun, what was it about it specifically that drew you in and made you want to keep going? The classes were, they were long classes. I mean, they, they lasted for two to three hours at times. Wow. And it was the old, uh, well, I had to walk to school uphill both ways. I mean, <laughs> school, judo school was miles away. Yeah. But my sensei's son and I were about the same age. So we got along great. And there were a lot of other uh, young teenagers in that class. So between 
and kind of a relaxed instructional atmosphere mm -hmm. and the physicality of it. My judo teacher back then, Joe Zorich, had been a power lifter. And so he taught us how to lift correctly. He taught us the importance of being in physical condition because strength helped. But this is back in the days when judo was, uh, was fingertip judo, where it really relied more on technique. And it's changed over the years. Uh, a few years ago, I was uh, teaching in Manchester, New Hampshire at Steve White School with Jimmy Pedro, who's an Olympic gold medalist in judo. Jimmy's been on the show. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, Jimmy and I, you know, we've crossed paths several times. I said, hey, uh, am I imagining things, but has this changed and that changed? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. The technique has changed over the years, and it's become a little bit more power-oriented. So uh, it was very interesting to see that, but um, really like the judo attitude. Because back then, karate guys were just uh, very ego-driven. I mean, a lot of them still are. Mm -hmm. But it was a relaxed attitude and with a, a great instructional an instructional format uh, at the school. So I really, really enjoyed that. Nice. And how long did you stay at that school? I was there for probably two or three years until we moved out of the south side of Chicago and out to the suburbs, and I couldn't find a judo school. Okay. So then what was next then after that? Ran into some Kempo guys at a party. <laughs> really? Okay. And, got, and they said, well, I said, well, I do this and we do that. And so they said, come on down to the studio sometime, which I did. And I said, well, this is pretty cool too. So uh, that filled the bill for me and I got hooked on Kempo. Nice. And who, which instructor was that with? Uh, the instructor was a man from California who had moved to Illinois okay. and opened three schools. I refused to mention his name because he's, uh, he was a bad guy. Okay. No problem. I, Hey, I've been there, done that. <laughs> I have, yeah. I have a former instructor. I will never mention on my show either. I, I just, I, I, anyone who asks, I just say he was my John crease from the karate kid <laughs> and they, they, yeah. they usually get what that means. So that's all that matters. Well, it was funny because it turned out that, uh, John Sepulveda, if you know, John, I know the name. I have never talked to him, but I know him. John and I are counterparts in the Kempo world. It turns out we had studied with the same individual at different points in time, but he studied in California and I studied with him in Illinois. Okay, cool. And how long did you remain with that person? That would have been for about a little less than three years. Okay. And uh, I had been going out on the tournament circuit and then I ran into a man named Mike Sanders. Ah, yes. Who was in Sterling, Illinois, which was about uh, 120 miles west of Chicago. And he had uh, been a classmate of Gil Hibben. Mm. Oh, yes. The knife guy. Yeah, the knife guy. Yep. <laughs> uh, they studied together at Mills Crenshaw School in the Salt Lake City area. And Mills was one of Ed Parker's first black belts. Mm -hmm. I met Mills years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I uh, met him a couple of times myself, but I got with Mike and I started training with him. You mentioned tournaments. Now, first of all, to back up a little, did you ever get involved in tournaments when you were in judo? No. Okay. So what led you to the, the tournament, the competition side of, of Kempo when you were involved in that? Well, when I was in that, uh, that first Kempo school, they had an inter-school tournament. Okay. And uh, I said, well, okay, sign me up. So I went and said, well, this is interesting and kind of fun. So that kind of got me started. And some of the guys in the studio were going to uh, outside open circuit tournaments. Mm -hmm. I said, well, okay, well, I'll do that too. That got me hooked. Nice. So do you remember your, your very first tournament then and how that went? Yes. 
Uh, it was an open system tournament, and uh, I think I was a purple belt at the time. The karate scene in the Midwest uh, at that time was dominated by uh, Japanese and Okinawan stylists. Okay. So uh, hard style. So our forms were not very much appreciated uh, by them. They just really, they looked, I don't think they knew what they were looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember uh, getting after sparring and not doing very well. But uh, that's a motivator. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, that, that got me triggered. So did you ever uh, compete in, at the internationals? Oh, yes. I uh, competed every year at the internationals from 1977 until 1988. Oh, wow. Very cool. That must have been fun. I've heard so many. I, I've been there once when I, I, I lived in California for a year, and I went to the internationals in 95 just to watch. But uh, just the, the heyday of the 60s and you know 70s and 80s of that tournament must have been pretty wild. <laughs> It uh, was very interesting. Yeah, uh, we used to go every year. We took several of the guys from my studio, and <laughs> some of the things you would see there is like, "Good Lord, what are they doing here?" <laughs> but <laughs> it was uh, it was good to get out there and compete on such a big scale. Yeah, uh, I tell people today that when I competed back then, you know, you go into the men's black belt Kempo forms division, and there would be sixty of us in there. Wow. Yeah, it was a big deal. So when you placed or won, it's like that was a big deal. Yeah, wow, that's crazy. That's <laughs> I've heard, I've heard that too. And on the fighting on the fighting side, I've heard even more in the black belt division. Of jeez, I mean, I go to you oh, know, tournaments nowadays, and you know, there's like seven eight guys. <laughs> no, it's uh, not unusual for it to run uh, well into the morning. Uh, you know, like one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Or so because there were so many in multiple rings of the same weight division. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was, it was really something. So I've been to a, a few tournaments in my years that went past midnight, but that was usually because they weren't being run properly, not because there was too many people. Well, I think the IKC was kind of a combination of those factors. Okay. That's kind of cool. Wow. And you mentioned uh, your school and stuff now at what belt level and kind of what drew you to the teaching side of martial arts? Well, when I was uh, a kid, and you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, I'd like to be a teacher. Oh. But I would go on and be a school teacher of, of some sort. And as the years went by, and I got hooked on a martial arts. I said, you know, I'd really like to be a martial arts instructor. So this is something that you know, I'm thinking about in my high school days. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to start teaching at some local recreation centers over time. And that just grew into a school. I had so many people that were taking lessons in my basement or uh, over at the rec centers that I wanted to give them a home. So my aunt, who I mentioned earlier, loaned mm-hmm. me $1,500 back in 1976. Wow. I mean, you can't do that today. Yeah. But she wanted to be a partner at first. And then when I got it going, she uh, said to me, you don't want a partner. She says, I'm just loaning you the money. Just pay me back, which I did. Mm-hmm. I opened that first school in June of 1976. And had schools in two states over time until I finally said, no, nah, I'm, I'm out of the karate business back in uh, 2007 as far as a commercial school. Okay. That very first school, how long did you did that specific one stay open in that location? I was kind of like a gypsy. I moved from place to place because I was getting bigger. Okay. And, but that was uh, 13 years. So do you remember at, at your height, like the most students you had in one school? 125 in a Chicago school, 250 in Florida. Wow. So what led you to Florida? I mean, that, that's quite, you know, a lot of times you hear people in multiple schools, they're like neighboring states. What, what led you to open one in Florida? Well, I had left the club in 
Chicago to one of my black belts, who's well, handed it has handed it off just recently, but he took the reins. His name is Kurt Barnhart, and he kept it alive. So that club is actually still functioning. Wow, very cool. A lot of the, the black belts I had back then that knew Ed Parker are still coming in for seminars and coming in for lessons and uh, and so on. Okay. But when the karate business got pretty rough in the late 80s, there was a point in time where, the, where about 25% of the schools in the United States went out of business. Ooh. I was working as a flight instructor. Okay. And then I had gotten a, a job offer to fly as a charter pilot up in New England. Okay. So I moved to New England, and when I got there, the owner of the operation says to me, oh, I talked to my uh, accountant, I can't pay you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I moved all the way to New England, and I found out I wasn't going to get paid. Dang. Stuck around there for just a few months, and I said, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I had a couple of sisters, and my mom and dad were had moved down to Florida, so I went down there. And Florida wouldn't have been my first choice, but I was getting kind of low on options. So I got down there, got myself set up, opened another school in Fort Myers in uh, 1992. Did you had, ever, uh, ever consider opening one in New England when you were out there and didn't have the job? No, because uh, one of my, and he's one of my senior students today, uh, Steve White had a school. I didn't want to step oh, on his toes. That makes sense. So uh, I said, Florida, and you know, I just I don't like the cold. <laughs> <laughs> me, either. I'm in Minnesota. Trust me, I feel you. <laughs> yeah. And how long did that uh, Fort Myers school stay open? Until I sold it in 2007. So is it still going then with whoever bought it, or no? He no. blew it. That's too yeah, bad. Running is not easy. Oh yeah, no, that <laughs> I know that. I have a lot of friends who have, who have run schools over the years. So yeah. So think back to maybe one of those very first classes when you were helping teach to now. What do you think over the years has changed the most about your teaching styles? That's a really good question, Brian. Um, back in the day, mm -hmm. you used to be able to teach with a stick in your hand. <laughs> yep. Uh, the demographic was like 18 to 24-year-old males. Not a lot of kids at mm -hmm. all. Not very many women. Uh, the one or two that I that were in the schools that I was, was first at, she was a tough one. She actually wore a cup. Oh, wow. <laughs> I had met that uh, when I was teaching in Sweden back in the late 90s. Uh, a lot of those ladies over there would do the same thing because they like to hit. Mm -hmm. So the teaching was um, a lot of monkey see, monkey do, which unfortunately affects a lot of the martial arts is because these are teachers that don't have instruction in teaching. There is a reason that people go to school, they go to college to get a teaching degree because there's a lot to it. And what happens in a lot of karate schools is like you learn as you watch your teacher and then maybe you get some coaching and sometimes you don't get much coaching at all. And they throw you out there and they tell you to go teach that class. Yeah, uh, It's gotten a lot better. But back then it was still kind of, uh, it was kind of rough. It was back in the, uh, what we call the dungeon dojo days mm -hmm. where, um, you know, a lot of hard contact, uh, not much in the way of safety gear. And at least in the school I was at, it was a trickle down where the orange belts would teach the white belts and the purples would teach the oranges and so on. Okay. So uh, not much to it. Yeah, definitely. It's always fun getting that, hearing that answer to that question because I know just even just talking to my own instructor from when he started in 1978 and how different it was in the 80s and even thinking back to 
when I was a teenager in early twenties in the nineties, how different it is just to today from the nineties, <laughs> just the, oh, yeah. the style of teaching and heard the stories of my instructor's instructor back in 1978. If a kid didn't listen in class, he gets smacked across the head. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> can't do that now. <laughs> no, you can't. Now, did you attain black belt in judo also? No, I made it to Brown. Okay. Talk a little bit about your, your Kempo black belt test. Your, your first one. What was that like? Um, I actually failed my test the first time. Okay. You know, I was pretty good at the forms. In fact, that's what my reputation generally is. Oh, he's a forms guy. Mm -hmm. But I did forms and fighting and all that. But the self-defense, the way I was taught it in in an offshoot system of Kempo was not very good. So when it came to the self-defense test, it was just, it was bad. So I failed it. But I knew to their credit, they said, this is what you need to work on. Because this uh, test I took was not at the studio. It was an all-style board. And they said, this is what you need to do. And so I took that to heart and I worked the heck out of it until I went back and, and tested again and passed the second time. With Kempo, is there like minimum how long you have to wait to retest? No. Okay. Nope. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Because uh, I know my, my Taekwondo black belt test, I, I when I failed the first time, I think it was, I think I had to wait either 30 or 60 days before I could retest, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So, and I've heard other styles that will make you wait six months. And I, one, one guess they had to, there was a year if you didn't pass. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that almost seems too long. Yeah. Now you mentioned like teaching in Sweden. So what, what are some other countries you you've taught in over the years and maybe one or two favorites? Well, I really liked uh, teaching in Sweden. Okay. Sweden felt a lot like home to me and being that you're from Minnesota, mm-hmm. a lot of Swedes, you know, a lot yeah, of Scandinavian, your territory. I just felt very much at home. And it was kind of strange because um, I spent so much time over there, started teaching me the language and the language actually stuck. And they said, uh, it's kind of unusual that you would pick it up that fast and remember it. But um, I like Sweden. Um, I taught in Australia. Oh, wow. Ireland, England, Denmark. Uh, Northern Ireland, Germany, Austria. You ever teach in Italy? No. Okay. In Italy, didn't get to teach over there. Okay. Taught in the Channel Islands, which is actually part of uh, the UK. Okay. Yeah, so I got around a little bit. That's kind of cool. I've never traveled much internationally, but uh, Australia and Italy are on my bucket list. Those are two places I want to get to to visit. Yeah. So what led to the book writing for you? When That very first book, how did that come about? Uh, when I was with Mr. Parker... I had, when I was in high school, I wrote for the school newspaper. So the bug was always there. My mother fancied herself to be a writer as well. So that kind of uh, trickled down to me. And when I got with him, I had started writing what uh, what I knew. Because my uh, second, my first real Kempo instructor, Michael Sanders, uh, was writing as well. Okay. So I looked at that and I, I said, you know, there's, there's an appeal to this. So I started to write. And working with Mr. Parker, I would write these these notes and show them to him. And then I uh, was with him for several years until I wrote something on uh, how to judge Kempo forms and submitted it to Inside Kung Fu Magazine back in 1982 or 83, and they published it. Nice. And that became the first of the string of articles that kind of established me as something of an authority on the art. But okay. every time that I wrote something, I always gave it to Mr. Parker to look at. Okay. And he gave his stamp of approval and it wasn't always on the first go. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in fact, one time he looked at, it, he says, well, you got the skeleton of the idea, but you're missing some bones. <laughs> nice. But it was an opportunity because these were all uh, points at which we could start a discussion. And I learned an awful lot 
from it because you know he had a requirement that you wrote a thesis when you went for black i've heard that yeah that's cool yes uh he always looked at it as being like a college level education so he wanted you to write a thesis and create a thesis form for first degree black belt well i wrote these series of articles and i talked with the people over at Unique Publications, which is uh, out of business, but they had a, a large uh, martial art library that they, they sold. And they said, yeah, we'd love to publish your book, but it's going to take two years. Wow. And uh, that was 1988 or so. And I got impatient. I said, give me that thing. And, and I said, you know, I'll do something with this. Well, it wouldn't be till about 10 years later that I took everything and consolidated it and published my first book called uh, Kenpo Karate 101. Okay. And that started the number series. Uh, then I compiled the articles into a book called Further Insights into Kenpo. Nice. And then I wrote Kenpo 201, 301, 401, 501, and 601. And then I capped that off with a book called Lessons with Ed Parker, which was a description of the interactions that I had with him, uh, private lessons and seminars and in traveling with him, being part of his uh, team to go overseas. Okay. And I'm working on an update of that. It should be out in spring of 2024. Cool. I've read the original, so I'll have to look for that update. That's cool. Ah, yeah. Well, I had to update it, and I added about 40 pages of information to it. Nice. And then I also wrote the uh, Kenpo Karate Compendium, mm -hmm. which compilation of the number books, the 101 through 601. So it was the forms and with more information and new pictures and so on. And then last year, I published the... Uh, the Kempo Companion, which is about 500 pages. Wow. So that, that brings my, my work in Kempo up to about 10 books, and I did three fiction books with a writer in England named Phil Buck. Really? Talk a little, yes. little bit about that. That's cool. Well, uh, Phil's a Kempo black belt, and he's also uh, got black belts in other systems. Uh, he's a Kung Fu guy, and he's got an Aikido black belt and, and uh, so on. But Phil got his black and Kempo from Gary Ellis in Plymouth, England. And I've known Gary since 1986, I think. Okay. So Phil would kind of follow me around. And when I was teaching in Germany, he'd fly over and spend the weekend. And we get to talking about writing because he's a very successful writer over there. He's asked to speak in universities and they've got an award named after him. He writes horror and it's pretty scary stuff. It makes me wonder about his sanity sometimes. <laughs> Anyway, Phil says, uh, I think you've got a fiction book and I know you can do this. I don't think so. And he just, he provoked me. So I said, I don't think so. He says, how about if we write it together? I said, yeah, we'll do that. And so we wrote the first one and that turned out pretty well. So we wrote a second and a third and we've got some flash fiction coming out at the end of January. That's cool. That'll post it on Facebook. I'll have to look those, the fiction ones up. That's, you know, my, my daughter wants to be a writer. And so I, every time I find interesting books like that, I try to point them in her direction and, and see what she thinks. So, uh, you know, Hemingway said, uh, being a writer is easy. All you do is sit at a typewriter and bleed. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's, that's good. That's really good. I kind of mentioned him a few times, but just talk a little bit about Mr. Parker. Kind of what, what was he like and what was he like to train with? I've I've been lucky enough to interview a handful of people that trained with him over the years, and it's uh, I always love hearing those stories. Well, he was intimidating for one, mm -hmm. and being the father of American karate, and he he's always said, he says I didn't take that title. He says that was that was hung on me by a magazine, which it was. Yep. But I met him. I went to the internationals in 1977. I have a picture in one of my books of, of that very first photograph. 
And then I would run into him across uh, the United States during national tournaments. I was on the national tournament circuit. And I kept seeing him. And of course, he was seeing me. And I would get to talk a little bit until 1979 at a tournament in Ohio. He says, I'd like to talk to you afterwards. And he says to me that uh, he'd like me to come to California to train and wants me to be his representative in the Midwest. So I was astonished. I had lost my previous instructor to a motorcycle accident. That was uh, Mike Sanders. Oh, wow. So I, I just, I was, didn't know what to do, where to go. So here it was, it just falls in my lap by the wow. grace of God. And I get with him and my first lesson is on the mat at Pasadena. It's a private lesson on like a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. And so he's, you know, I'm a hotshot second degree black belt with a bunch of trophies that I've won in tournaments and I don't know anything. So he starts to fill me in. He says, you know, down on your horse, how do you find the dimensions of a horse? What about an inward block? And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know any of this. So the depth of knowledge was really extremely beneficial to me. Okay. And he's a big, powerful man. He was fast. And when he turned it on, it was scary. But all the times that he worked on me, he never hurt me. He hit me. He'd knock the wind out of me now and again. I remember once he, he caught me with an elbow in the solar plexus. And I was, oh, he says, uh, yeah, it kind of goes up and down your spine across your kidneys, doesn't it? <laughs> and he laughed at me. But he was always with me. He was always encouraging. And I was doing a demo in Australia. And I was down there on, on the team with him. I was running form five and he was standing behind me. I could hear him saying, go, go, Lee, go, go, go. And that sort of stuff meant a lot. That's cool. Uh, he was, you know, he had my back. So being with him, he was one of the guys, but you knew that there was something about him. He had charisma. He was would have been part of the royal family if the royal line still existed in, in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. It actually does, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And he would make people feel like they were special. He, so he had a princely quality to him. And I learned an awful lot from him, not only martial arts-wise, but how to deal with people and handling karate politics and, and uh, running a business and so on. So when I wrote my book about him, I wanted people to get a sense of what he was like, not just what he did, right. but what the man was like, you know, his family. You know, like, you know, he had a dog, and what kind of car he drove and, and that sort of thing. You know, and he liked to tell jokes. I would pick him up at the airport and we would tell jokes to and fro. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So it was fun to be with him. That's cool. I've always loved Mr. Parker stories. I mean, I, when I lived in California, you know, 96, 97, and uh, the, I trained. So I did some training with with Larry Tatum, with Jeff Speakman, and with Jim and Deanna Diggs. And there's always, I would be students popping in, you know, older students that trained with him. And they'd always, you know, take time after class to tell an Ed Parker story. And it was just... That's so cool. <laughs> so it's always good hearing it, you know, firsthand from people who, who were there and who knew them. I mean, like I said, I didn't, I never, never got that. I mean, I, I was born in 74, you know, I didn't start Kempo till 96 when I lived in California. I trained other styles, but never even had, I would have had a chance to meet him. So that's cool. That's really cool that you got to have, have that experience and have that be part of your life. Oh, it was great. I can't tell you how many times we'd, you know, have lunch or dinner somewhere and there'd be people at the table with us like, uh, Ernie Reyes or Remy Prasus. Nice. Billy Blanks and, and so on. Chuck Norris. Very cool. So yeah. talk a little bit about, I know you, I, we had chatted before we started recording that you were, you were part of the Tom Bleeker uh, series, you know, the journey. 
talk a little bit about that when, when you were approached and kind of what your uh, initial thoughts were on that. That's, you know, that's how, that's how I first learned about Tom Bleeker, you know, when I bought that book and, and Tom was actually the very first guest on my podcast, episode number one. Uh, oh. Yeah. Really good. Interview. It's, I, I love the, I love the books and just kind of talk a little bit about that. Well, I was, you know, I don't know what the process was to get your name out there and, you know, get nominated to be included in the book. But uh, I get contacted by Tom and he says, well, we're, we're going to include you in this. And much like what you're doing, I said, well, tell us about your background. Mm-hmm. So it was written I, and I sent it out to Tom and he wrote back and then he called me and he had a series of questions. And the one that really stuck out was that he said, would you call yourself an autodidact? And I went, uh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> he said, it's a person who teaches themselves. Ah. And I said, uh, yes, I would have to say that because I was in a situation with martial arts wise where I didn't have an instructor where I could go down to the school a couple of times a week. It turned out that after that first guy who was a bad guy and I got with Mike Sanders, I had to drive. I had to spend a couple of hours to get out there an hour's home, and then I lose Mike in a motorcycle accident, and now I find myself getting on an airplane to fly to Los Angeles to take lessons. Mm-hmm. So you can't expect under those conditions to get fed the material like you would if you were in class twice a week. Right. So you, you've got to have a, one of my students called a fertile prepared mind. I did a lot of reading, not just on Kempo, because there wasn't much to read back then, but just the martial arts in general. So I had uh, some idea of the type of questions to ask with him. So um, that's what I think contributed to Tom's question about being an autodidact. And I've found that that's to be true in some of the other things that I've I've done in my life, like aviation and law enforcement and so on. That's cool. Talk about KempoTV.com. Kind of what what led to that, and tell you know what can people uh, see on there. That's a really good question too. I had a, a student who's a IT guy and very enthusiastic. His name is Tom Finelli. Tom uh, said you have to put this stuff on film and put it up on a web so people can can access it twenty four seven. And I said, I don't know about that. And he urged me, so I did it. And what I've got now is it started as Kempo TV as a website, and then we moved all the videos over to Vimeo. Mm -hmm. So if you go to Vimeo, I've got two tiers of instructional video on there, and there's approximately 2,000 videos that I filmed. And the lower tier is for beginner and intermediate students. The upper tier uh, is for uh, advanced and skilled and instructors. So as I was talking about earlier, about a lot of instructors don't have formal instructing in instructing. I've uh, put a series of about 75 videos up there about the laws of learning, how people learn and how they forget and tactics to approach certain issues that you have as you're teaching somebody. Oh, I got a person who's this, or I got a person who can't do that. What should I do? What can I do? So I do that, and there's about 100 free videos up there on the homepage that, uh, you know, stuff like there's Professor Chow doing a demo and and Parker teaching and and that sort of thing. But the Vimeo platform itself has got sections on these are the basics, these are the forms, these are the self-defense techniques, here's the extensions, uh, here's the freestyles, here's the concepts and principles, here's terminology, and so on. Yeah, I'm just kind of looking over it right now, a lot of lot of good stuff on there, wow. And I will definitely put links for all this stuff when the episode comes out, too. Yeah, great. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of good info. Yeah. 
I mean, it's it's got a good response from people. They can use it 24-7, and if they don't want to subscribe to it, they can rent a video for oh. 24 hours for 2 bucks. Nice. That's kind of cool. Uh, nice to have that option. Sure. So, and then you also talked a little bit about, and not, not much to do with martial arts, but, you know, being a flight instructor. So what about your martial arts training do you think helped in that part of your life? Well, that's a really good question, too. And it's funny because in the Parker system, we have this mandala called the universal pattern, Mm -hmm. which is a one-dimensional representation of three-dimensional space. And when you fly airplanes or helicopters, when you fly, you're working in three dimensions. And I took some of the ideas that I had learned from the universal pattern and applied that to how I saw the airplane moving and those dimensional changes. And really, if you learn martial arts, like boxing is a good example, really you have four punches, jab, cross, hook, and uppercut. In aviation, you've really only got four things you can do with an airplane. Mm -hmm. So you put these things together into combinations. And in an airplane, that's how you turn your stuff into uh, traffic patterns and aerobatics, uh, that sort of thing. It's just the basics tied together in different sequences. And then uh, Ed Parker's concept of margin for error was pretty handy for me because, you know, you're dealing with a dynamic situation, landing an airplane or taking off. you got a pretty stiff crosswind or there's ice on a runway. It's like, how do you plan for that? What's your margin for error? Because you can't do the ideal phase anymore. And when they say that uh, learning martial arts is, you know, also learning life lessons, that's how I view that sort of thing. It's like I learned it doing tempo, but I applied it in other parts of my life. I like that. That's a good answer. Now you've been in, you know, judo and you did, uh, you've done Kempo most of your life. So what are your thoughts on something like MMA and the UFC? And is that something you're a fan of? I don't watch it. Okay. I watch it when it first started and I, I have to laugh at the comments when it says, well, it was all MMA in the beginning and then it got specialized. <laughs> so, That's a good, uh, good way yeah. to look at it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I kind of think so. And it's good. It's another option for people. And some people like to uh, get out there and do MMA, the nice blend. Mm-hmm. And I am certainly not opposed to taking things from other arts and integrating it. In fact, that's I've got a student named Eddie Cabrera in Tampa, who's a Golden Gloves winner. Nice. And he does all the Kempo fusion, and he puts boxing into the Kempo techniques. Okay. And uh, Phil Buck in England has uh, built a program for us called the Locksmith, which is a locking program to uh, fit in with the self-defense techniques. And I've taught uh, internal arts to some of my guys, so they like to put the uh, the internal aspects in with the uh, the Kempo as well. Yeah, a lot so, of a lot of the people I've talked to that that knew Mr. Parker and trained with Mr. Parker said he he was always about the art evolving. He didn't want it to stay the same, and yeah. it, it seems a lot of people lost that. I think. Uh, well, you got two camps, just like anything else. Yeah, yeah. I opened up a seminar once many years ago. I said, the first thing I'd like to say is that nobody agrees about anything. <laughs> that is true. And everybody, everybody laughed. <laughs> <laughs> but you have the people that are doing uh, their art like they did back in 1980. They just run on the techniques over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. they're not doing the exploration of the what ifs and, and formulation and so on. And that's okay. Yeah. You know, if that's what they want to do. But uh, I, I think you're right. I'm really, I'm seeing a lot of the same issues that I saw in traveling with him back in the eighties. People are still doing it today. It's like, uh, have we learned anything guys? (laughs) So in all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy you've learned that is at the top of your list? Uh, well, there would be two. 
Okay. Uh, one is don't fight unless you absolutely have to. Nice. Because uh, when I ask people, it's like, if you get into an altercation, a physical altercation, what are the percentages that you're going to win? And most people say, well, it's 50-50, you win or lose. It's not really. It's uh, 33%, 33.3%, because you can win, lose, or draw. Mm-hmm. There's always a possibility that guy or person gets a lucky shot in and kills you yeah. or maims you. So if you don't have to, if you can swallow the testosterone and walk away, that's a better thing. That's one. The other one is that there are certain golden threads that run through the, the martial arts, and it doesn't matter what system you do, that there are certain principles that everybody follows. And uh, I thought that was valuable as well. Nice. All right. So I got a few fun questions to wrap it up. Now, this one, it doesn't have to be four. I've had people give as few as two names and as many as eight, so it's kind of up to you, but maybe three, four, five names that you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Oh, boy. Uh, Well, I would put Ed Parker up there. Definitely. um, For a lot of reasons, and not just because he was my teacher for 11 years, but uh, if you look at the constellation of stars in the martial arts, he would have to be one of them. Yeah. I would put uh, Jigoro Kano. Nice. Um, the, okay. uh, the founder of judo mm-hmm. because of what he did as far as doing an extraction, taking the uh, the breaking and so on out of the art to make it something that people could do of all ages. And even though it's called uh, the gentle way, it's really not so gentle. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one one other name I always like to mention because he's a role model for me. That's uh, Danny Anasanto. <sighs> yes. Awesome. And you know, I've run into Danny many, many times in my career and talk with him and keep in touch with a couple of his guys over at the academy there. But he's got such a great attitude and he's, you know, he's getting older and he's still out there doing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd have to say Danny's on that list. Have you ever got to train with Danny? Oh, yes. Nice. I never got to, though. I, I tried stopping by when, when I lived in California like two times. I tried stopping by his school and he wasn't there. So I never actually got to meet him myself. Still, I, I've got to meet many, many cool people over the years. Just never got to meet Mr. Anasanto. I've, I've interviewed Diana. Diana was on the show. But, uh, yeah, Dan Dan would be fun to, to sit down and have a conversation with sometime, too. So He absolutely would be because we've had many conversations. Not extensive ones, but he was funny the one time. I asked him a little bit about his background with Ed Parker because he was a Kemple black belt. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, yeah. He says, Ed lectures me. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I think a lot of people forget he was a Kempo black belt just because he's so known for Cali and Eskrima and he's so known for Jeet Kune Do. A lot of people forget he was, you know, a Kempo black belt. I remember reading years and years ago, out of the 13 Jeet Kune Do instructors, seven or eight of them were Kempo black belts. Wow. I did not realize that. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Nice. Larry Hartzell and Danny Anasano and some of the other guys. Okay. All right. Do you have, you can't pick one of yours, obviously, but do you have a favorite martial arts book? Uh, boy, I got a lot of them. I would think, and it's, it's more on the concept side, but, uh, mm-hmm. on combat is a good book for any martial artist. I don't think I've heard of that one. I'm adding that one to my list. He wrote, uh, two of them. It's a uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman. He wrote on combat and on killing. Okay. And you want an insight into uh, the mind, uh, the mental aspects of those things. And those are two great books to read. And then uh, Shepard's two books, The Fighter's Mind and The Fighter's Heart. Those are good. Yeah, those are really good. Those are good books. 
Do you have uh, another book planned? I'm working on the update to Lessons with Ed Parker, the 2024 okay. version. But beyond that, uh, I don't know. I mean, every time somebody asked me this question, Brian, I said, no, I'm not going to do another one. And then I do another one. So. <laughs> Seven books later, I'm not going to do another one. <laughs> right. I get that. Yeah. I've thought about it over the years and I'm just like, man, I mean, I love writing. And I, you know, I used to, I was a kid who we had to write a, you know, 10 page paper in high school and I turned in a 70 page paper, but the, yeah. th- the thought of sitting down and writing a book, I just, I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's like anything else. It's, uh, and people ask me all the time because everybody wants to write a book. In fact, the first book that I was putting together, I talked to a lady who was a mother of one of my students. She had published a couple of books. And I said, I want to write a book. And she laughed at me. She goes, everybody likes to write a book. <laughs> no, seriously. And I showed her the draft. She goes, oh, okay, well, maybe you're serious. But, you know, I talked to people. It's like, put your thoughts down and spend maybe 20 minutes a day working on it. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. Okay. If you read about Thomas Jefferson, about what polymath he was, you know, an, uh, an inventor, musician, a politician, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. <laughs> um, how does a person do that? Well, he said that he took 20 minutes a day and worked on different subjects. And, you know, he spoke multiple languages. And it's, that's how you do that. And then you actually start to put it together over time. Because I think it's when you start to push yourself that you actually burn yourself out a little bit and you never get it done. That's good advice. And then when you do get something written, I advise authors, I said, you give it to somebody who knows about as much of the subject as you. Give it to somebody who knows nothing and somebody who knows more. Okay. And have them read it and get their comments. Because I would, when I wrote my Lessons with Ed Parker book, I gave it to my wife. And she said, what about this? And did he have that? And I said, you know, those are really good questions. And I, and I got the answers and I included them in the book. Okay. She knew nothing about him. She never met him. Right. But yeah. I thought that those things are, are helpful. So when I, I give them to somebody, I had a book translated into German. And she came back and said, what about this and what about that? And that taught me the value of how having to be very explicit mm-hmm. because we default to slang and we assume that people know, well, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> True. Do you mean this or do you mean that? So okay. that helped me improve my writing. And the good thing about the time we're in now, now is, is probably the easiest time of any time in history it is to, if someone wants to actually write and publish a book. Because, yeah. you know, I suppose when you probably did your first one, you know, there was probably, what, maybe 10 publishers, 15 publishers in the U.S. that would maybe consider it. And now you can go through something like an Amazon. You can self-publish. You can, I mean, there's so many different ways you can publish now compared to before and yeah. actually, actually get a book out and make it a bestseller possibly <laughs> without yeah. having to go through one of the big ones. All right. Now, this one you may not have an answer for, but it's usually about 50-50 with my guests. Do you have a favorite martial arts video game? Did you ever get into video games? No. Okay. That was easy. All right. How about a favorite martial arts TV show? No? Nothing? No. Just don't watch them or just not none that you were a fan of? I don't watch karate movies. Really? When I was younger, when I was first getting into it, I'm a teenager. I think it was a brown belt or something. The first mm-hmm. movie to come to the United States is called Five Fingers of Death. Yes. And, <laughs> so we went and hooted and hollered and all that. And then, you know, you saw End of the Dragon. All the Bruce Lee movies came out. And then you had the Karate Kid. Mr. Parker loved the Karate Kid. Yeah. The first one. He loved it. Yep. And uh, I knew Fumio Demura as well. Ah, yep. Another former guest on my show. Yep. He was a cool guy. Yes. Uh, he was in Chicago once. And he, you know, he doubled for Mr. Miyagi. Mm-hmm. But I really kind of lost interest in it. But I can certainly appreciate, like, <laughs> I watched the John Wick movies. Yeah. I said, I like what he's doing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> 
Well, then you, you may not have an answer for this one. Then I was going to ask you a favorite martial arts movie. Is there one from maybe when you were younger that still stands out where maybe if, if it was on and you were flipping around channels and saw it, you'd probably sit and watch it. Uh, you know, there's a couple of movies that if Jan walks through and sees them on TV, she goes, okay, he's gone. <laughs> like uh, Braveheart. Nice. Or the last samurai. Uh, that's, I love that movie. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you call those martial art movies. But, I think Last uh, Last Samurai, I, I would count. That's actually been picked a few times. Yeah, I just, uh, when I first heard that in the Tom Cruise, I say, I'm not going to see that. And mm-hmm. somebody got me to go see it. And I took several of my black belts with me. And the one black belt, Frank Triolo, had uh, lived in Japan when he flew for Japan Airlines. And at the end of the movie, I heard something. I looked over at Frank. And Frank's older than I am. Mm-hmm. Crying. Wow. What's up, Frank? And he says, it just makes me know how much I miss the people of Japan. Wow. It just made him so emotional. So, so I thought that was a pretty powerful movie. That's cool. So what, what did you think of Karate Kid? You said Mr. Parker liked it. Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. I didn't like the second one. Yeah. Which was. The first one is the one that got me into martial arts. So that's that's the whole reason I started martial arts in 1984. Because I was walking out of the movie theater and a local Tung Sudo school was handing out free passes. <laughs> uh, good marketing in 1984 that's for sure <laughs> yeah he loved that movie he thought it was great i watch it at least once a year it's it's one of my all-time favorites yeah all right well this one maybe you'll have an answer for them this one doesn't have to be a martial arts movie any movie you've ever seen favorite movie fight scene favorite movie fight scene mm-hmm. i'm gonna default back to the last samurai okay when the ninjas attack the village oh yeah that's a great scene because, you know, there's all that sword play. But at the very end, when they're two of them with, uh, with Cruz and the, uh, I don't remember the character's name, mm-hmm. the clan leader, they were standing there. It was quiet and their eyes were bugging out. You know, they're on high alert. I say, that is what it's like. That's cool. Yeah, it's a great movie. So now I've heard rumors for years and different people and stuff. And do you think we'll ever see a movie about Mr. Parker, biography movie about his life? I don't think so. I know that they've said that they were trying to pull one together, mm-hmm. but no, I don't think so. That's too bad. I, I just think that's a, a story people would enjoy. I, I know. I mean, not, and not just martial artists. I mean, I think people would love to see that movie. I'm hoping I'm still holding out hope that maybe in my lifetime I'll see it. Mm-hmm. Did you, uh, did you ask Tom Bleeker that question? I think I'm pretty sure I did. I'm, I, I, I'd have to talk because I, I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote the screenplay probably. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to re- reach out. I mean, that was three years ago when I interviewed him, three and a half years ago. So I'll have to reach out to him. I've also had Ed Parker Jr. on the show too. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, actually, Mr. Uh, Parker uh, Jr. actually uh, designed the logo for my podcast. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, such an amazing artist, and it's. I'm I'm hoping to have him do one of the the portraits one of these days. It's he's such a such a talent. I love everyone he's ever done. So yeah. Yep. Well, before I let you go, is there anything that maybe I forgot to ask you or you just want to be sure to, to get mentioned before we wrap it up? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I've spent all these years teaching mm-hmm. and wanting to perpetuate the art. It's got a lot of value to it in a lot of uh, a lot of ways that we've talked about. So I've written the books and done the videos and all that. I, you know, I have to laugh when people say, well, you know, you wrote the books. I said, I don't write them for you. I wrote them for me because I forget things. <laughs> But I want that information out there because over the years, it's people were hesitant. Uh, they didn't want to write it. They, they just said, well, I can't. I'm not a writer. That's why they have ghost writers. Mm-hmm. It needs to be preserved. 
And we've got such great technology now that we didn't have, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And everything from many, many years ago is like it was cave drawings and it was passed down by word of mouth and so on. You have the historical aspects. Yeah, I really I think people really need to take advantage of the resources. And I've seen people out there who said, well, we just don't know where to get it. There's a lot of seniors out there, a lot of senior instructors that you can get a hold of to get it uh, you know, from first generation people. Yeah. And they're not going to be around a whole lot longer. Right. Instead of saying, well, I don't know, I can't find it. Oh, it's out there. And it's easier to get than it ever was. And that's one of the main reasons I I started this podcast too, is that, you know, I want these stories to be told and I've had three former guests now pass away since I've interviewed them. And, you know, one of them, I was their last interview before they passed away. And it's like, that, that, that hits hard. I'm like, that, that's the last time they got to tell their story. Yeah. That's why I love when, that's why when people say yes to this and agree to do it, I don't take it for granted. It's, I think it's important that, you know, and I, I have even, I have many non-martial artists that listen to my show and they just, mm. I just love, I love good storytelling and these people have interesting lives. And I purposely, when I started it, I didn't want just people known for martial arts. I wanted a wide range of guests. I have people who I've had NFL Hall of Famers and you know people from movies and TV shows that weren't known for martial arts, but I found out that they trained in martial arts and you know oh, yeah. th- things like that. So I wanted a nice wide range of guests and and just for a chance to them to be able to tell their story in, in their own words and and let people make their own decisions on it. Sure. Well, I I truly appreciate your time, sir. This has been such a blast. I, I've I've known about you for a while. Like I said, I've I've you know read the the Tom Bleeker books, and I've even though I don't train in Kenpo you know, anymore because I don't really have a local school, but I've I've always been a, a fan of Kenpo and followed the Kenpo community. So I've always known about you, and you were you were on my list for a while as someone I wanted to reach out to and try to get interview with. So I'm glad we we made this happen. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked. It's always uh, fun to do these sort of things. And you asked me a couple of questions I haven't been asked before. So it was cool. That's always good. I like doing that. Well, I, I can't wait till the episode comes out. Yep, me too. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.